Open your Bibles this morning to Ecclesiastes 5. If you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, Ecclesiastes is an Old Testament wisdom book, and you will find it on page 555 of the Bible from the seat rack in front of you. Have you ever been in a building or structure that carried such sacred weight that it just had the quieting effect on your spirit? Or maybe you walked into a building and saw many other people there, but immediately felt and sensed this holy hush that was in that location. There's several sites I've visited in my lifetime that had that effect immediately. Uh, One of the most profound moments for me and surprising in many ways was when we had the opportunity to visit the USS Arizona Memorial in Pearl Harbor a number of years ago. Sacred location. And they prepare you well by telling you the story before they put you out on those little ships that make their way out uh, to the memorial. And then you have opportunity to get out and stand on the water where the oil still seeps from the Arizona where it was destroyed and sunk on that fateful December morning many years ago. I would say there was a similar, similar sense of what is sacred and almost otherworldly in the Holocaust Memorial in Washington. Uh, there's no way that you can make your way through that memorial and process as best you can the story of the wicked and evil slaughter of millions of dear Jewish people by a, a demonically possessed man in all likelihood. Sacred space. I've been in other places where I anticipated that sense, but then never really felt it. The Sistine Chapel was one of those. Uh, And I don't know what I expected, but part of the problem is they keep the lights so dim to preserve the, you know, just the spectacular paintings on the ceiling that it's a dim room, and it's quiet enough, but you can't see it like you want to. And I would just say, honestly, you know, what what they've printed in books actually gives you a clearer view. You should still go there if you have the opportunity. But I went in expecting a sense of, whoa, and it was more like, oh, shh, just, you know, be quiet and move along as soon as you can because there are thousands of people behind you. Well, I don't know what your experience may have been in sacred spaces as we sometimes refer to them, but Solomon is, in a sense, walking us into sacred space. And he would have had the temple that he had the privilege of constructing chiefly in mind when he begins to talk about approaching God in his house. We'll read it in just a moment, but for a second, let me set this up by reminding you about the temple and just some things about its size and and its intention that really were otherworldly. Everything about the temple said, be careful, Outside the temple proper stood the bronze altar, 15 feet high, 30 feet square, the fires of sacrifice burning continually. Across the pavement from it stood the sea, as it was referred to, a massive basin itself, seven and a half feet high and 15 feet wide, filled with water for the priests to wash themselves. In front of the massive wooden doors uh, over the the immediate structure of the temple. Those doors were overlaid with gold. There were two pillars standing in front, each cast from bronze rising 27 feet into the air. Hollow pillars 
with the names Jachin, which means God will establish, and Boaz, which means in him is strength. Each pillar topped with an ornate ornate capital rising another seven feet. Passing through the doors into the holy place, you would find yourself in a room that was 60 feet long and 30 feet wide. Its beams, thresholds, walls, and doors were overlaid with gold. Carved cherubim lined the walls. In front of you stood the golden altar of incense, the fragrant smell ascending as a testimony to the continual prayers of the saints rising into the presence of God. Ten golden lampstands, five on each side, lined the room, the warm glow of lamplight reflecting off the golden walls and precious gems used in the construction. And directly in front of you stood the golden table of the presence, the unleavened bread spread across it, symbolizing the life-giving sustenance of God's people. And beyond the altar of incense, a series of steps ascending to the doors of the Holy of Holies. They too were overlaid with gold, and inside two massive cherubim stood guard over the Ark of the Covenant, each 15 feet tall with 15-foot wingspans, the tips touching the side walls and each other in the center. These were the carved likenesses of God's personal attendants stationed in the throne room of heaven, and between them, the Ark of the Covenant, also known as the Mercy Seat, the very place where God Almighty had promised to meet with His people, skillfully carved and crafted by Bezalel almost 500 years before Solomon's temple was constructed. And in the ark at this particular time was a copy of God's law, a symbol of his absolute standard of righteousness and the eternal covenant made with his people. Only the high priest had access to this holy of holies and then only once a year. And the structure itself proclaimed the holy, transcendent sovereignty of God. And at its completion, as recorded in 1 Kings 8, when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand a minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And when you think of what that physical structure represented, and you think of what Uh, rituals and practices the Lord himself had authorized and you think of what the sights and smells and sounds must have been it's hard to fathom that anyone would move toward this location carelessly or thoughtlessly but like just about everything else in our life familiarity tends to diminish the significance And when we become familiar, even with sacred spaces, we are also easily, uh, we easily become careless in our approach. There's part of me that wonders if what Solomon writes for us in this fifth chapter might actually be a little bit of self-disclosure, a little bit of self-confession, as it were, because we do believe Ecclesiastes was written at the end of his days, and he had lived many years in unfaithfulness to God, probably himself carelessly approaching the temple, 
carelessly approaching God's word, carelessly going about the daily rituals and practices, his heart somewhere else, and his mind disengaged. Perhaps some of what he is saying as he describes the worship of wise people and contrasts it with the worship of fools is a little bit of his own confession. I can't say that for sure, but that thought has occurred to me over the last several days. There is always a danger to the routines of our faith and our worship. I want you to look with me at Ecclesiastes 5. We're just going to read the first seven verses of this chapter this morning and focus our time there. Solomon says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is God's word. Would you pray with me, please? Father, in the time that we have this morning, we open our hearts, even as we open your word, and we ask you that according to your promises, you would illuminate the steps of our paths, that we may walk where you want us to walk, and that we may walk in the way you want us to walk. Give us grace to believe all that you reveal to us today. And give us tender hearts that eagerly consecrate themselves to your service, to worship, to love, to honor, and to obey all that you are and all that you have willed. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What I'd like to do is just very briefly contrast wise worshipers with foolish worshipers. And so we're going to begin with wise worshipers. And you'll note right out of the gate that wise worshipers approach carefully. That's what's in, 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 layered into the command to guard your steps. Literally keep watch over your steps of approach. Proceed with reverence would be a theological way to express that. And there, there may be some allusion, as some teachers and commentators have noted, uh, even to God's admonition to Moses when the bush was burning and he revealed himself to him in that burning bush. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And I think God, it is clear that God desires us to give care or attention to how we approach him, specifically in public worship services like this, because that was the whole point of gathering in the temple. It wasn't the only place you could worship, but there were designated feast days and holy days where God's people were expected to, to come. Now, we're not Old Testament saints anymore. We live in, in this New, Te New Testament era and day and age, so Sunday is our day where we all come together. I'm glad you made it this morning. It's a great honor and a little bit of a surprise in some ways. Week after week, you just keep doing it. How amazing is that? Well, you're, you're actually moved by something that has been moving God's people for a long time. 
Now let me just insert here that part of guarding your steps, giving careful or, or keeping watch carefully over your approach actually begins to, 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 to just express itself in a very practical way in the personal preparation each of us makes for worship services in times like these. I want to say, first of all, and even going back to one of the great hymns, newer hymns we just sang, that um, before the throne of God, uh, we have this great high priest who leads us in worship. The, the very best way to prepare your heart and to prepare your steps as you come into this is, first of all, to spend time reminding yourself of the powerful truths that are ours the great realities that we have a great high priest who's already gone before us and prepared the way. God is not sitting back today going, you know what, your daily acceptance is gonna, by me is going to be based on how well you perform in the worship service today. No, we come in worship because there is perfect acceptance. You know, I want to put to rest this old wives' tale. How many of you grew up hearing that when Israel's high priest went into the holy place, they tied a rope around his ankle so that if he dropped dead in the holy of holies, they wouldn't have to go in and retrieve his body, but they could haul him out? How many, how, I grew up hearing that. It's okay to admit that. Did you know that's not actually in the Bible? Now, for some of you, that's startling. You're like, what? It's not. And, and here's the powerful reality, not just that historically it's inaccurate. That priest represented someone far greater than himself. And if your earthly high priests, priest who represents your eternal high priest, Jesus, dies in the heart of the temple doing the most essential work on your behalf, you have greater problems than just how you're going to retrieve his dead body. The whole system begins to fall down. So when we sing that we have a great high priest, my name is written on his hands, engraven on his heart, I know that while he stands in heaven doing his high priestly thing, no tongue, that is nobody could speak a word that would actually cast me out of God's presence by faith. You, you realize our worship is secure. Now, that doesn't absolve us of responsibility of preparing in the appropriate ways. It just lays down this massive foundation of security where you say, because of Jesus, our high priest, we're good. So that's the first way to prepare your heart. Think long upon your great high priest, Jesus. And then as Hebrews 10.22 tells us, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What are you full of assurance of faith about? Who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he is doing right at this moment. Hebrews goes on, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, his blood really does cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and our bodies washed with pure water. See, here's the thing that people like us who know we're not just imperfect, but like deeply flawed and sinful in corrupting ways, like we really shouldn't be in the presence of God. It's too dangerous, and a perfectly holy God would at minimum cast us out, if not just like, you know, crush us on the spot. But we don't fear those things because of who Jesus is. And so Hebrews says, draw near, knowing that a, a guilty conscience really has been cleansed. 
that you really have been fully washed, like the priests were washed and sanctified and qualified to enter the holy place. What a remarkable reality this is. So that's where your preparation begins, but I want to get even more practical. Do you know your preparation for this day really needs to begin on Saturday evening? It actually, I mean, it actually starts Monday morning, like we prepare all week for this. But just a little practical word. Americans love to stay up late, especially younger Americans. And we hit the weekend, and we've worked hard, we've been in school, and we're like, woo the weekend's mine. I'm going to do what I want. Now I can, you know, watch that movie or hang out with friends or have those people over or, you know, just sit on the back porch. All that's fine. But if your Saturday night gets so late that Sunday morning rising time also gets late and and you wake up in a bit of a panic and look at the clock and like, church starts in 17 minutes. Honey, get the kids. We got to get in the car. Sing a hymn. Prepare your hearts. You're just not going to be ready. So I would suggest some of you actually think in terms of, if I'm going to be fully engaged on a Sunday morning, what actually needs to happen on Saturday evening? And maybe that's the time to just go ahead and pick out some outfits, do a little ironing as necessary, go to bed at a decent time, wake up on Sunday morning, where, where you know you have a little extra time. And I'm looking out at a lot of moms and dads of young kids and like, you don't understand. We kind of do. Kristen really does. She will have special rewards in heaven because I've been a pastor all these years, so I know what she did on Sunday mornings. I was very rarely there to help. Very rarely. I regret that. She knows what it's like to try to get four little ones dressed, fed, in the car, sweet spirit, you know, ready for church. It's great having adult children who recall those moments uh, and, and they tattle on one another even now. Uh, they confess things that, you know, we weren't fully aware of or their memories of stories. I mean, there are some great tales that Kristen and our kids could tell about Sunday mornings. And, and one of the things that they all confirm is that nobody remembers one Sunday morning when there wasn't at least one child crying. All right, so that doesn't sound like great spiritual preparation. But Kristen kept working at it. So I know some of you are working at it. And I'm not trying to describe some kind of, you know, sentimental ideal scenario like it it belongs in a Hallmark movie. I, I know it's work. But do as much as you can to position yourself to come into this gathering and be ready. And sleeping late it doesn't help. It, it doesn't mean you have to get up, you know, at the crack of dawn and have two hours of Bible reading and prayer and hymn singing before you come to the worship service. But some of you could, could bump up the schedule a little bit by starting Saturday night by going to bed a little earlier, getting a good night of rest. And, and I say this in all sincerity. I'm a more spiritual person, personal illustration. A good cup of coffee is helpful in this ongoing process of sanctification. (laughs) That's for me. A good breakfast will help. Some of you say, I don't do breakfast. Great. But you know the kinds of things 
that, that give your soul room to breathe and allow your heart to begin to settle a little bit where you're here. Guard your steps. Wise worshipers do. Number two, also verse one, draw near to listen. Wise worshipers prepare to listen attentively. Philip Ryken, who I've made reference to in this series, has written a great commentary on Ecclesiastes. Says very simply, it's hard for us to listen. So many other voices clamor for our attention. Even when we enter a quiet place for worship, the noise of the surrounding culture is still ringing in our ears. That's a battle for every one of us. But let me press it just beyond the you know, the opportunities to have all those voices in your head. The enemy doesn't want you to be in a position to hear God's truth. Do you know why? It has to do with the fact that God's truth is transformative for you. God's truth is life-giving for you. God's truth is faith-building. God's truth is heart-changing. God's truth is peace giving. Of course our adversary doesn't want us to hear God's truth. He trembles to think of the effects of God's truth getting into your heart, being embedded in your soul. We can be like those that Ezekiel wrote of in his Old Testament prophecy, chapter 33, verse 32. This is actually the Lord speaking to Ezekiel and encouraging him because Ezekiel was pouring out his heart, just giving the word of the Lord. You would think that if God sends a prophet into the midst of a group of people and says, thus saith the Lord, and they know the Lord has spoken to them, that people would listen. Well, they weren't. And God actually gives Ezekiel perspective and says, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. They hear what you say, but they will not do it. What's the point? Oh, they love your entertainment. They are in awe when you stand up and speak, just like they're in awe when a really skilled musician with a strong and vibrant voice takes the platform. But it doesn't have any impact on their lives because they didn't come, Ezekiel, listening with a view of being changed. Hebrews speaks of a similar response, and it's possible for us to hear God's word in a similar way. Hebrews 4, 2 says, Good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. There's a responsibility when we hear God's truth to activate our faith to first believe what God says to us and then yield ourselves in submission to do it. Prepare your heart and mind to listen actively to the word. So some of what I even said about just spend a little time on a Sunday morning praying, getting your heart, your head in tune, but practically speaking, take notes. I, I love seeing people do it. I'm gonna brag on our teens. These are, there are two here in the front row today. Sometimes there are more. Uh, and, and I've been so encouraged by teens in particular who over the last several years uh, come with Bibles open and notepads or a little piece of paper, and they're taking notes. Could people come see the notes you, you girls are taking afterwards? Would that be okay? Yeah. 
Allura's okay. I'm getting a stare like, oh, I will never be back in the front row again. Don't, don't ask Elise. They're not the only ones. I know some of you have a little different techniques, and, and this is not to put shame on anybody who's not, you know, eagerly taking notes in the moment, but it is, it is, a, it is a, a challenge for some of you to consider, should you? You might be surprised what you take away that uh, you might be missing. It's one of those ways that we listen attentively. Then, number three, wise worshipers respond carefully. Solomon goes on to say, let your words be few. Um, End of verse two. Sorry, I should have told you that. Now, notice the why. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Clearly, the priority has been that we prepare to be in the presence of this great and mighty God, that we make the priority listening to this great and mighty God, and then knowing that his word also always calls for a response of some kind, we also give care in how we respond and what we say. Did you know that worship services like these really are a, a divine conversation in a way? Like there's a dialogue going on right now. God speaks and we then respond. That's, that's really the, simple, uh, the simplest way to express what's taking place in any worship service. That, that's why we say from time to time, like, you come here at Gospel Hope, we're not putting on a show. Like, we believe in congregational singing. We believe in congregational singing in part because we believe a God is speaking first. You say, what, what do you mean? Yeah, worship is a dialogue. So here are some specific examples. When God, whether through his word or even through the lines of, of a hymn, reveals uh, our sin in particular, the response he is seeking to draw out of us is a response of confession, of seeking his forgiveness. When he shows us aspects of his character and truth, his glory and majesty, we respond with praise. And sometimes we praise in loud songs. Sometimes we praise just in quiet contemplation. Sometimes we praise him through sacrificial gifts that we give. When God shows us our need, we bow in prayer with humble petitions. We may even turn to a brother or sister and say, pray with me. I just feel so overwhelmed by what God has revealed to me about himself or, or about my particular need at this moment. Then God speaks to us in commands and instructions and says, you should do these things. You must not do these things. Well, we should respond and sometimes with words and sometimes just with action in ways that are appropriate. We consecrate ourselves because he speaks and commands. Now there is an accompanying danger, and look at verse 3, and this will transition us into the worship of the fool. Solomon writes, For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. And now we want to gather some things that we've already read through in verse 1, but just look for a moment at descriptions of the worship of fools. First of all, broadly speaking, a fool is careless with his worship of God. A fool is careless in his worship of God. 
Back in verse 1, Solomon warned against offering the sacrifice of fools. And you might say, well, what is the sacrifice of a fool? Is it possible I just put it in the offering plate? Maybe. But it's not so much a physical, tangible sacrifice. The next verses will demonstrate that the sacrifice of fools has to do primarily with thoughtlessness when it comes to God himself, whether it be the words that we speak to him or about him, and then even more specifically, making promises to God and then not keeping them. Vows. And did you notice what Solomon said of this kind of sacrifice? They are doing evil. It's actually possible to be in the right location, the temple or a local church like this, You're surrounded by people who really do love the Lord, and yet because your heart is not rightly connected to Him and your spirit is not in right relationship with Him, that you could go through the motions but actually end up sinning. That's a little scary. We'll go back to verse 2. When we say the fool is careless with his worship of God, diving down a little deeper, he's careless in his communication with God. Or perhaps we could even say about God. Verse 2 says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. You know what the words rash and hasty have to do with? A, A rash decision, a rash action, typically speaks of something that was done in haste. And so we act or we move or we speak with high speed and thoughtlessness is what usually gets us into trouble, and hasty runs along the same lines. There's a, there's a quick response. It might even be in response to what was happening in the temple worship, just like there's, there, there always is a kind of, uh, of emotional response in settings like this. I mean, how can you not be moved to some extent by a group of people singing loudly, vigorously, And sometimes we mistake a feeling that comes over us for a spiritual moment. Well, you know what? I I have powerful feelings on occasion when when I've gone to large sporting events. And I'm telling you, when one of the first large sporting events I ever went to was when Kristen and I were dating. She lived in Detroit. I went to visit her one summer. Her dad came home from work, and he had tickets to the NBA Finals. The Pistons were playing the Trailblazers. Now, we, I, were we top row or second from the top? I mean, it, classic nosebleed seats. I grew up as a Celtics fan. If you know anything about the history of basketball, Celtics fans hate the Pistons. Hate is not a strong enough word. Go back and watch Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, and company talk about Bill Lamb <laughs> beer. But on that day, I accompany my, were you fiancé yet? Girlfriend? Love of my life, that was always true. (laughs) I didn't wear the gear, but we get into um, the palace at Auburn Hills. Pistons take the floor. Initially, the Blazers jump out to a lead, and then Big Mo goes to the Pistons' side. They start this amazing comeback. The crowd is totally into it. You can't hear yourself think, let alone cheer. I suddenly realize it's an out-of-body experience. I'm on my feet cheering for the Pistons. 
Was that a spiritual experience? Maybe of darkness, I don't know. (laughs) Don't mistake powerful emotional moments for rich, real, deep spiritual moments. Fools can get worked up about even God's worship, but it's actually not honoring to him. And they begin to say things in, in hasty, rash response that God's not looking for. Verse 3 is a proverb, and it's challenging. At this moment, when I look at that, a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. I think there's a comparison going on here, and I've, I've tried to you know, look at commentators and such like that, but the, the best I can, to, to cast this into you know, more modern understanding, as it were, to follow Matt's lead from his earlier translation work in in Bible reading. Like the fatigue of long days of work that leads to many dreams, and we all know that dreams have no enduring substance, so a fool's voice produces many words, even in the context of worship, which have no substance to them. Go to Mark 9 for a moment, please. Second gospel of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Mark 9. And this is a sweet example, but I I think there's a cautionary tale woven into the greater message of Mark 9 where the Lord selects Peter and James and John to accompany him up on what we now call the Mount of Transfiguration and to give them a taste of future glory. It's, it's real present glory that Christ enjoys. The veil is drawn back. It's an amazing moment. So listen, I'm going to read verses 2 through 7. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. It's, it, again, it's, it's the reason we all love Peter. We relate to this guy because we've all been in a moment where it's like, I'm saying words that I should not be. You know, you, you can't re- grab them out of the air and push them back down. And Mark, as he records this story, probably even heard it from Peter himself, straight up. Adds verse 6. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And we we would totally understand that. But look at verse 7. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Oh, and there it is. There are times where you want to say something, but the priority is to keep listening. It's just a reminder. We need to be careful. A fool, go back to Ecclesiastes 5, and now look at verse 4. The fool is careless, thirdly, in his promises to God. Solomon brings up the issue of vows. They're all through the scriptures. They're very important. And, and they they actually encapsulate a variety of promises that people make to God. 
um, often very common things, but really important moments. Jacob promised to worship God with a tenth of all of his possessions if God would protect him, Genesis 28. Um, Jephthah, one of the judges uh, who followed Joshua, promised God he would sacrifice the first thing that greeted him if he survived the battle with the Ammonites. And that's a whole sordid tale of its own recorded in Judges 11. Hannah, sweet Hannah, childless for so many years, prayed for God to give her a son. And in return, she promised that she would return that son to God. And God gave her Samuel, one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. Well, those kinds of vows are all through the scripture, but God said very clearly through Moses to Israel after the Exodus in Deuteronomy 23, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. It's a really big deal. And vows are in their own unique category. Well, Solomon is picking up on that similar thing and notice that in contrast with with the God-fearing worshipers who might make a vow and, and then fulfill it in the proper biblical way, Solomon is warning against those who make vows and then they don't actually pay it. Verse four, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Verse five, it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And at the same time, don't use that as an excuse for not doing what you know is right. Well, God says it's better. I mean, that, that, that's why I'm not ready to, you know, make a serious vow about serving God. Well, no, serving God is the right thing to do with your life. Clearly commanded from beginning to end. Well, but doesn't he say it's better not to, in, in one sense you're right, but you're, you're playing games. Like, do the right thing. What we're talking about would be an example if, if you said, you know what, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna start tithing 20% of my income to this church and then as inflation continues to go up and times get you know, even tighter for you personally or you lose a job, you're like, Ooh, but I vowed. Yeah, you did. And if you really vowed it, it's kind of on you. So be careful in that range. And, and if you look at even the examples of vows that seem to serve as the really healthy examples, people were in extraordinary moments. They're, in a sense, they're coming face to face with uh, their God in a great need, and they just have a profound sense that this is the moment I, I really do need to promise something unique, something special to God. People aren't, I mean, Hannah didn't, there are no other vows that Hannah made that are recorded. Now, maybe she did. And, and I, I don't know that I've ever, from the pulpit as a pastor in all these years, called on the congregation, you know, God wants us all to make a vow today. I haven't felt led to do that. Don't know that I ever will. Vows are a really big deal. And the fool gets into trouble because there's kind of this spiritual momentum that, that worship services and gatherings like this can generate and they're swept up in momentum and they start saying all kinds of foolish stuff. First of all, it's not accurate about God and then making promises like this to God that they're not in a position to fulfill. That's Solomon's warning. Verse six, let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? That's strong, isn't it? Well, let's jump to verse seven because this really is where Solomon is seeking to lead us. 
When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. There's just emptiness to live in that kind of of foolish life. And what's actually the corrective for a fool? Well, here it comes into verse 7. God is the one you must fear. You think about how much foolish behavior is generated because there's actually a fear of man. We also call it peer pressure. It goes by a number of things, but we're just more concerned about making the people we're living nearest at the moment happiest, entertaining them, having their affirmation, finding their approval, all kinds of motives, but we're actually living in the fear of people. Or you might be living in the fear of circumstances or consequences that, that you imagine might come your direction. And so we, we get caught up in those things and tend to say things and promise things and vow things that we're just not in a position to keep. You know where every one of us need to be living life? Right at this point, in the fear of God. Simplest definition of the fear of God I've ever heard. It's always stuck with me, but I think it, it's, it's simple enough but comprehensive enough. And I want to share it with you. I've shared it here many, more, many other times, but I'm bringing it up again. The fear of God is simply this. The fear of God means to live in the constant awareness of the presence of God. Because he is constantly present. And to live in the constant awareness of the presence of this God, the God of the Bible. This is the God who rules and reigns from heaven's throne. He's not a little local regional God like the Baals of the Canaanites, for instance. He's not a demigod who's got more power than you, but, you know, has his own limitations. This is the infinite, eternal, self-existent, all-knowing, all-powerful God. And so we go back to verse 2, and, and I, I want to just kind of put a little meat on that notion of fearing God right out of this text. Fear him for, first of all, his sovereign rule. He's in heaven. We're on earth. I love what one author wrote. He is not part of the universe He's not the soul of the universe. He is the eternal, uncreated, absolute, self-contained, self-existent, sovereign creator by whose will and power all things exist. They depend on him for their being. He depends on none. Again, that's one of those concepts that the older I get, I say, I can affirm that with my little pea-sized brain, but to comprehend that, impossible. I believe that because that's what the scriptures reveal to us. It's why we were reading in Psalm 89 earlier. It's why the psalmist is compelled to say, who in the skies can be compared to to Jehovah? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? And the answer is there's no one. Fear him because of his sovereign power. Number two, fear him for his sovereign anger. We, we didn't spend a lot of time here, but go back to verse 6 and notice this. Part of Solomon's warning that we would not let our mouth lead us into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? You know, when God gets angry with people or entities or things, breathtaking 
things unfold. And our culture has, our culture really is averse to the notion that this God could actually be angry with them. And we, even well-meaning evangelicals, try to apologize for, for God in some respects or soften it a little bit. Beloved, when God, when God pours out his wrath on his enemies, he obliterates them, crushes them, destroys them. And it is good for us to consider, is God angry with me today? Because he's a righteous judge. And Psalm 711 says he's a God who feels indignation every day. His, the, the perfect justice in him knows and, and sees all things. And though his perfect justice is not at odds with his abundant mercy and his Great patience, we call it long-suffering. That is, God himself is willing to suffer long, bearing up with this indignation that rises as he watches the evil and injustice that continues to be perpetrated on earth. But he does so with the hope and expectation that people will see their evil, repent of it, turn of it, and that he can make all things new for them. But do not mistake his long-suffering as indifference. Do you know the story of Uzzah? It's a graphic moment. It's one of just a couple of incidents in the Bible where God just steps right out of eternity, as it were, and, and acts immediately with swift justice. The Ark of the Covenant had been stolen by the Philistines, and they had kept it for some time, and then God sent them a plague, and they're like, we gotta get rid of the ark, send it back. So they, they put it on uh, an ox cart, it, it gets returned to Israel, and then, and then Israel makes preparation to return it uh, to Jerusalem, and Uzzah is one of those who accompanies the ark on its journey, and uh, apparently on the road, as it's on the back of the ox cart, it gets a little bumpy, it starts to look like the ark's coming off, and Uzzah simply reaches out his hand to touch the Ark of the Covenant, which is the symbol of God's presence. And when Uzzah touches it, he drops dead on the spot. And David is angry. Of course, he's terrified as well. How could this happen? I'll never forget what the, what the great Bible teacher and preacher R.C. Sproul said about this little moment. He said, the problem with Uzzah is that he actually thought his hand was holier than the ground. And I thought, so do I. And if you're honest, you probably do too. And God gives us those little reminders, just sprinkles them into the scriptures. So whether it's Uzzah or Ananias and Sapphira, Nadab and Abihu, he just stuns us because he bursts through the long suffering and in a moment brings his anger and just wrath to bear upon a sinful act. Well, we should fear this God who is sovereign in his anger. The last thought is we should fear him for his sovereign grace. And it's the stories of Nadab and Abihu 
and Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira that hang like this grim, bleak, dark backdrop. And against it, God hangs grace. I was struck over the last couple of days by the little thought, God is in heaven, you are on earth, but there's more to the story. God is in heaven in all of his perfect glory, you are on earth. We are on earth in all of our sin and corruption and imperfection. God is in heaven, you are on earth, but God came to earth. This is the grace, and it's not in Ecclesiastes, but it's just another gospel thread that we need to weave into the beautiful wisdom and truth that Solomon is giving us and remind ourselves that God came to earth as a man. Oh, sinless, no corruption within him, but still entered the world through miraculous means, yet also the ordinary uh, process of conception and birth and grew up under the parental leadership of Mary and Joseph. He was made in our very likeness. And he did it to rescue and redeem us. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 tell us he laid aside his glory and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of of man, And what a marvel it is, what grace it is that the infinitely powerful one who could have broken through the veil again and just destroyed all of humanity did not break through that veil to destroy but broke through to save. The infinitely powerful, powerful one whose holy glories, the seraphim and the cherubim, chant continuously. They sing the song of the Holy One in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That God exchanged his royal and righteous garments of heaven for the swaddling cloths of Mary's impoverished nursery. He traded the eternal light and majestic beauty of heaven for a seat at Joseph's humble table. He did not make his dwelling among us in order that in order that he might improve our dress or reform our table manners, but rather he came to transform us from the soul through the heart into his likeness by the sovereign rule of his soul-cleansing obedience and life and his life-transforming grace. The God who is in the heaven came to earth that we might be saved. And specifically in the ministry of this God, the one whom God the Father said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He not only proclaimed good news to those who were outsiders and who had been marginalized both by the religious system and the cultural currents of their day, but who were enslaved to their sin. And how did he break the slavery of that sin? He did it by a substitutionary death on the cross where the father whose anger had been, had been growing and boiling in that cup of wrath that Scripture speaks of released all of that, not on us who deserved it, but on God the Son who took it all on the cross of Calvary. 
God is in heaven. We are on earth, but this God came to earth, lived the life we never could, died the death we deserve to die, then resurrected from the grave miraculously that ordinary, broken, sin-laden, sin-cursed people like us might say there is an eternal life to be gained. So yes, prepare carefully for Sunday worship. Guard your steps when you approach a house of God. Do all those things on a practical level that will get your heart tuned up, but know that the great high priest has gone before you and by his blood has opened the way and by his life has qualified you to know the living God. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, thank you that Jesus himself bore our sins. in his precious body. We feel such sorrow and shame. And yet, greater than our sorrow and shame is the joy of knowing he did it for joy that was set before him. He actually did it that we might be delivered from the sorrow and shame that some live with every day for their sins. Oh, Lord Jesus, in great love, would you, would you lift that shame from them right now? Would you diminish the memory of their sin because you, you bring the, the powerful reality and vivid thoughts of your death on the cross of your mighty resurrection and your glorious ascension. Let those great realities eclipse the shadows of our shame, please. Thank you that you are the great high priest who even this day has perfected our worship and led it. What a great day. We love Andrew, but we would much rather see you lead the service. And one day we will. And there will be millions who assemble and will employ, first of all, our voices to sing praise to this high and holy God. And the instrumentation will be amazing and it will all be perfectly synchronized. No, no orchestra, no band, no ensemble has ever approached this. But it's all because of our one great high priest. It truly puts us in awe. But we want to deepen that sense of awe and we want to be among those who, as Solomon implored, God is the one you must fear. So lead us. Comfort those who are grieving today and whose grief seems greater than your presence and truth. Awaken those who are asleep souls anesthetized with the world's entertainment, the world's ambitions and aspirations. Awaken them to the eternal realities that they may quickly leave the fool's errand that they are on. And for those who wrestle, who honestly seek you and yet at this moment feel like you are largely hidden to them, Lord God, have mercy and open their eyes today that they may see you are not only 
the glorious, all-powerful creator, but you are the glorious God who came to earth to save us from our sins. You are Jesus. We love you. And we fear you. Because you are sovereign in power and you are sovereign and justly so in your anger over our sin, but you have been sovereignly gracious in your son. And for this, we praise your high and holy name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.